Thank you for downloading this sponsored podcast presented by PR Week. For more podcasts, visit us online at prweek.com. Hi, everyone. This is Gideon Fiddles, I Imagine Editor of PR Week. It is my pleasure to welcome you to this very special session, Reshaping the Future. It is sponsored by GNS Business Communications, and of course, much gratitude to them for doing so. Earlier this year, GNS unveiled its Reshaping the Future report. It is a great compilation of data and insights about the factors that are driving businesses and brands forward. Coupled with unique perspectives, its goal is to help communicators and their brands build a better future, even in this rolling reality. That's their term, not mine. It's a good one, though. I like it. Our session today is the first of five we are doing throughout this year. They all focus on reshaping the future, but each one will concentrate on a specific sector and will feature a top comms leader from a prominent brand in that space, along with a leader from GNS with particular expertise in that space. The sectors we will focus on in future sessions include agribusiness, health, home and building, and advanced manufacturing. Today, we kick things off in the financial services sector. We'll talk about hybrid services. Hybrid, that's a word I know everyone's been hearing so much over the last year plus. Trust equity and access, and the specific needs and expectations of the next generation, younger millennials and Gen Z. The key to any great discussion is a great leader with whom to have that conversation. Well, I'm very fortunate, as we all are, that I have two such professionals joining me today. Jen Lowney, Head of Business and Corporate Communications at Citi, and Anne Green, Principal and Managing Partner at GNS Business Communications. Jen and Anne, thank you both so much for joining me today. Great to be here. Thank you. I can't wait to learn about money because, as my wife knows, I know nothing about it. So this will be a lot of fun for me. Anyway, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. So let's just get right to it. And one of the topics that I said we were going to talk about is hybrid. Now, one of the words whose use has skyrocketed since the pandemic started is hybrid. Now, of course, the word is often used in discussions about the workplace, but hybrid is a very relevant word in the financial services space as consumers very much, very much want that perfect combination of digital and in-person services. That's the future. Actually, it's probably even the present. As leaders in the space, I would love to hear both of you speak not only about what you believe is the perfect mix between the two, but how brands in the space are getting there. Um, I did a coin flip before we, before we got on air here, and um, Jen, it came up heads. That means you're going to go first. Well, I mean, embedded in your question, Gideon, is a focus on consumers, and that's an important part of the conversation about the digitization of finance. Um, the perfect hybrid depends on the customer demographic that you're talking about. Often, the financial industry, I think, gets criticized for not having evolved quickly enough, but what's important for us is to not get ahead of where our customers are. There's a generation, and this was primarily pre-pandemic, that very much wanted to go into a branch, see somebody, talk to somebody, and have that ability to touch and feel their money, their checks, uh, their statements. Um, And that has evolved since the crisis began, and the adaptation of digital banking by the older generations has definitely accelerated. But we'll we'll see how that, what happens with that after the crisis is over. We most certainly still have people coming into our branches now, and we have branch colleagues who very thankfully are on the front lines and have been during the crisis willing to serve them. Um, and then you take the other end of the spectrum, younger generations who are very happy to never have stepped in a branch, uh, who do all of their banking online and use you know, a number of tools to do that. Um, at the end of the day, I think what people want is the combination of digital, uh, the ease of digital banking 
with the assurance that there's a person that they can get to, to talk to, because at the end of the day, it's their money. Yeah. You know, I got to be honest with you, Jen. I really appreciate that because I have become notorious in my circles as someone who was a very, very late acceptor of digital deposits. And I send checks to everyone in the mail. I think I personally kept the USPS in business for a long time, <laughs> but that's another story. Now, and sorry, I don't want to steal your thunder. Obviously I know you have some thoughts on this as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I love everything you're saying, Jen. I've often felt when it comes to hybrid, it's not an either or equation, you know, and watching the evolution of financial services over, Oh my God, almost 30 years now, which it, it's humbles me to say that, you know, there's been so many times that we've read the American banker cover story that the branch is dead. There's been so many times that, you know, we've heard that this is coming, that is coming. I think that simultaneously for me, two things have struck me in the past year. On the one hand, it's a reminder that the branch is still vibrant in its own way. It is still necessary and a critical touch point, especially as people reach life stages. And that includes younger consumers. There's generational differences and uh, comfort with digital and other technologies that might not existed when I was born in 1971. But there's also life stage of when am I getting a mortgage? When am I getting loans? When do I really need to see people and have counsel? But on the other hand, the other side of it that we've seen over the past year is some of the things are finally coming true. The promise of contactless payments, which we've been tracking for almost two decades now, more people using them, you know, more use, the pandemic pushed more of that. So I think that it really is going to be a personal thing for each customer, as Jen said. I think that it's not an either or. We've got to have a multi-channel approach. And it's interesting in the research that we just fielded, we fielded it both in October 2020 and January 2021. So it's interesting, even the delta there. But you see like 40% of people still want to deposit checks in person, 40% still want to open an account in person, but 47% want to do digital deposits and 42% want to use apps to transfer money. So we can really, really see how much we're in the mix now. And I think organizations like yours, Janet, it's a lot to balance all those channels and try to meet the right mix of things for different consumers and customers. Well, that's, that's really interesting. It's still 40% of people actually want to open, think, open up an account at a branch. I mean, okay, maybe, maybe I'm not that unique. That's good mm-hmm. to know. Um, you know, City, which I do use, by the way. And that's, I'm not lying. I actually do. Um, I, um, Thank you for being a customer. Absolutely. You, you, guys, you, guys, uh, you guys have some really perfect digital offerings, so it makes my life a lot easier. And you haven't lost any of my money yet. Nice. Good job, Jen. <laughs> that's a perfect segue to trust, Okay. The following is a quote from GNS's Reshaping the Future report. Bedrock values like trust, safety, convenience, and outstanding personal service remain constants in a sea of change. The financial industry understands this better than most. Hmm. And do you know who said that? Yeah, I think that was me. Um, in, and yeah, I do believe that very, very much. Uh, it, it is the table stakes, you know. And it's interesting because, again, when we did the research, um, the decision making about what coming out of the pandemic was going to be the big motivator for financial institution choice, trustworthiness and security were one and two. Now mobile apps and uh, some of the digital aspects were up there as well. But I think that especially with the pandemic with so much fraud happening and so much anxiety, um, the trustworthiness and the security piece really became critical. But um, the trust piece for me also um, goes to a more macro issue. If we think about what we've been through in the past few years, especially last year, this question of trust in the political sphere, in news, in government, in systems, um, in healthcare, 
uh, in equity, and we're going to talk more about that later. I mean, there's been a lot of damage in the question of trust. There's been a lot of division and divisiveness. But um, this core question of when it comes to the most foundational aspects of your lives, like your money and your health and the safety of your family, um, I think that's been a double down and it's going to be really interesting. And, and we saw actually, I don't, Jen, you probably saw this too. You know how American Banker and RepTrack does the bank reputation survey every year. And in 2020, um, the numbers really shot up again, you know, it went down after 2017 and then right back up again, like a hockey stick. And I, I, I was really blown away by that because I think it's a, it's a demonstration of in a time where you don't know who or what to trust, some of these institutions are becoming super important again. Yeah. I mean, we, we saw, as every bank did, and as you might imagine, a massive decrease in trust in our bank and in our industry after the financial crisis, deservedly so. Big mistakes were made. And we've, it's been a long, hard road to get back to the point of rebuilding that trust. And I think the, the, the COVID crisis, the health pandemic, our, one of our stated objectives going into it as an institution was to be part of the solution and to make, be part of the solution for our consumers, to be part of the solution for our institutional clients, and to also work with governments and be a facilitator of getting the programs that they were putting in place to both consumers and to companies. So a lot of work across the industry was done on that front. And I think overall, I'm, I'm quite proud of my bank's efforts, but everybody's. Importantly, though, I also think that this was a real-life uh, example to see how much we had learned from the financial crisis and were all these measures that we put in place as an industry and that our regulators um, had thought long and hard about actually going to work in a real-life crisis. And the great news is they did. I mean, banks' capital and liquidity levels stayed strong over the course of the crisis. We were able to continue to extend credit to our clients in all end of the, ends of the spectrum um, while, without jeopardizing the safety and soundness of the system. Uh, and I think that um, the, the industry showed, showed up strong. The work that had been done in the last 10 years to make sure that, if, that safety and soundness was prioritized showed itself. And I hope that that goes a long way to continuing to mean that, maintain that trust going forward. Um, you know, Jen, one of the reasons that I was really, really excited about this conversation, having you and Anna on it was two things. One, clearly people's money Perhaps outside of health, there's nothing more important to a person than their money. And they need to know that they need to be able to trust the institutions that are frankly holding it. But the second thing is, I had the pleasure of actually being with Jen earlier this year on a roundtable about purpose. And I remember Jen talking so much about how proud she was of how City really, really helped so many people get through this crisis. Their role in the community and societally really, really shot up because of the needs that so many of their customers had. I mean, they were struggling. People lost their jobs. People had people were furloughed. People obviously had pay cuts, things like that. And City really, I mean, I know, Jen, the way you were talking about it, how City really came through for a lot of its customers and what a source of pride that was for you. So I think, um, you know, banks doing that and with a topic that is so important to people like their money, that can't help but build the kind of trust that people need to see in, in their brand. So I thought that was really, really important. And I appreciate your responses on that. Sort of in the same realm is equity and access. While COVID-19 has dominated the past year plus, the issue of racial inequality has come to the forefront as well. It has shined a spotlight on the glaring lack of equity and access for underserved communities, including, perhaps especially, 
in the financial services arena. Many feel any chance this country has to bridge racial divides depends on ensuring equity and access. What are entities in the financial services sector doing to close this chasm? And and I'm going to start with you on this one. Yeah, it's a it's a big one. And I think that when we talk about systems, we have to understand we're all part of them, you know, and I think that what's been exciting, I mean, for me, I'm very involved with DE&I efforts at our own agency, we've been taking a hard look in the mirror, our industry has really struggled with this and put together a multi point action plan to do something more. Um, but I think for me, one of the most exciting things, I never thought that we would get in the corporate world to the depth of conversation we're starting to have and really to peel back and have a bigger acceptance of sort of the systemic issues around us. And for financial services, you know, I've seen clients and colleagues do so many different things over the years to change access, whether it's a retail banking setting or, you know, loan origination, you know, lots of different sectors and also using technology. We're seeing so many different investment platforms and apps and, and new ways of access. I mean, we knew in, with the mobile phone world that many people in um, lower income might have a smartphone, but not um, a fancy computer. And so that those kind of app access made a difference. I think that what I'm really interested in hearing more about going forward, and it'll be really interesting to hear your point of view, John, is, you know, there are aspects to certain aspects of financial services where there's unwritten rules or unwritten cultures that can be hard to penetrate. So, you know, going into a bank branch in a formal way, how do you feel you're seen there? How do you feel what is offered to you? Where are biases hidden in terms of what products are offered or how underwriting is done? Um, you know, there, there's a lot to unpack there that I think a lot of financial institutions are working hard on. And also, how are we increasing lending to minority communities or giving people a chance? I mean, one area I've worked in a bit that's very interesting was alternative finance. So not the kind of shady dealers, but ones that are really looking at how do we give short-term financing to say a restaurant entrepreneur to buy the wine they need for fourth quarter, and it's a shorter term type of financial product. That area is really built, and I think that now banks are looking at that too, saying maybe our small business lending will be more nimble and flexible. Maybe we can play a role in that too. Maybe our underwriting is going to change in its structure, not that it's unsafe, but that it's looking at different types of audiences. So, you know, I think from a systems perspective, from an access perspective, and how are different customers coming in the door, I, I think there's a lot to do here, and there's a tremendous amount of progress that we, we can all make. But Jen, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So this is a big issue, obviously. It covers a lot of ground. Yeah, no, it does. I think, it, I think it's a gritty issue, is the way I would summarize it, because banks like banks and businesses, I think for, you know, a while now have thought about their policies and practices and put the right things on paper um, and have a lot of good people throughout the organization that have the right intent. And the, the needle hasn't moved as far as we would all want and hope. So why looking at why is that and how can you dig in and, and figure out how to actually change that dynamic. And one of the one of the ways that we are doing that is by actually acknowledging where we need partners to help us get into those communities and have a credible offering and reach the kind of customers we want to be part of our our bank. And you know, for example, we a few years ago um, established something that we called the access checking account. And if you have it's a, it's a digital checking account and if you have a direct deposit coming in or an auto payment going out, it's free, no monthly fee. Um, and that, that product has been hugely successful for the bank, but we've now recently partnered with the National Urban League to figure out how to take that product and offer it 
to um, communities of color more aggressively around the country. Uh, so that's one piece. Another piece is more on the institutional side. Um, we're working very significantly with minority deposit institutions, both to reach their customer base through them. I mean, their, their customers don't need to be taken away from them. And, and at the same time as we're serving that customer, we're empowering the MDIs, helping them extend the credit that they want to their customer base and we're work by backstopping that. And then we're also working with them on a mentor protege program so that their personnel, their staff, their colleagues can learn from us and how we do this, the, these types of deals and this type of lending on a bigger scale. So you kind of have to find all, I, I think it's, it, we all have to attack it in different ways and pick different pieces of the problem and get real gritty and creative and how we're thinking about solving them. And again, across the industry, what I think is fantastic is you'll, you'll see a, a, big, a lot of big numbers coming out of banks. We pledged a billion dollars to help closing the racial wealth gap and other banks have similarly done the same. And we applaud them because again, all of these things to actually make their way to becoming ingrained sustainable change, um, the more the merrier and we all have to be creative about how we're going about doing it. Well, it's really encouraging to see that the thoughts that are on paper that have been there for a while are starting to actually come to fruition. Uh, because again, broadly speaking, this is, this is an issue that the, the racial inequality and the lack of access and equity has been built up for over hundreds, hundreds of years in this country. And it's, I think it's about time that they got solved. So I'm really, really happy to hear some of, that you guys are really working so hard to get some of those solutions. And Gideon, to build yeah. on one quick point with Jen, one thing that's exciting too is to see adjacent industries working on this together, but also separately. So one area I've also worked in for years that's very married in many ways is real estate, is uh, mm -hmm. residential real estate. And you know, clients like ours, like Holdwell Banker, um, they've really been acknowledging housing discrimination that's happened over years and also barriers to home ownership. And that is very, very much tied with the financial system. So I think, Jen, those programs you're talking about, I so agree, like getting very on the ground with people that are making a difference and the, and the, and the structures and institutions that have built up to serve those communities. It's going to be really exciting when we see these adjacent industries that are so tied to wealth building start to work in tandem to bring those barriers down. So, you know, that's something that, um, that I know that I've been watching and it's, it's going to be exciting to see that evolve over time, I think, coming up. That's just a brilliant point because I think one of the, um, I believe one of the things that even President Biden said when he was talking about what, what he could do to bridge these gaps is home ownership is just a symbol of, you know, of some sort of wealth, some sort of value. That's what everyone aspires to in this country, having a home. So that you're so right about that. That's a great point, Andy. One last Jen. point I'll make too is, is that, I mean, companies like mine, others in the industry, we're big companies, right? We have 210,000 colleagues globally, more than 60,000 here in the U.S. So what we do within our own doors and how we are attracting, retaining, and promoting diverse talent actually has an impact as well. So um, that's an important area of focus. Oh, absolutely. Your staffs have to represent society. Mm -hmm. Very, very important. Now, our final topic, which probably makes a lot of sense for something called reshaping the future, is the next generation, right? If we're talking about reshaping the future, it's only logical to discuss how brands in the financial space are adopting, adapting their services and offerings to the things that will particularly appeal to younger generations, younger millennials, and Gen Z. How is this managed? Okay, well, I'm actually going to actually have to ask you, since you both come from once from the brand, once from an agency, how is this manifesting itself at City, Jen? I'll start with you, then we'll go to Anne. Yeah, and it's, it's a really broad question, but I would say it starts with a baseline understanding that um, young, the younger generation is used to being able to access almost anything, dinner, a taxi, 
uh, at their at access to their bank account payments uh, at their fingertips. And that is not their standard by industry. It is their standard for life. Mm. And unless we're meeting that standard, we're, we're failing to meet what the next generation is looking for. So that's the mindset that we bring to it. Um, as a derivative of that, I would say financial services have become very embedded uh, and, and, and we're trying to be part of the ecosystems that people are operating in while also maintaining that level of trust and protection that customers want from big established financial brands. So for example, we, we've announced that we're having a partnership with Google, uh, whereby you can open a checking account via Google. Um, you can use it with Google Pay um, right directly out of your bank account. Um, but at the same time, that account is run on city rails. We own your data. We protect your data. Um, but we're meeting you where you are. So we're trying to meet that very careful balance of the expectations that our industry rightly has and the standards that our customers rightly expect of us, but meet them in the places where they are and with the ease and, and that, they, that they demand. Uh, thank you, Jen. And Anne? I just have to react to that. I mean, that's exciting to see partnerships like that happening. Like you said, it's running on your rails still and security and all of the things that you need to do to protect that, those accounts. But to see those kinds of bigger partnerships, I think that watching the technology infrastructure on which financial services runs, I've worked with clients like Fiserv for years. So understanding how these infrastructures behind the scenes work it's there's a lot more flexibility now like you said financial services especially payments are sort of embedded all through the system and it's happening in really seamless ways and we've seen it come to life with things like uber and others obviously those are often based on credit card but um it's just one way that we're sort of seeing younger people taking that power to transact the way they want to when they want to i mean the, what i would build on um i do think that years ago we started to see that the world of Apple and Google and Amazon even really remapped our brains. You know, it changed what we expect from everyone. And I remember years ago, um, there was a financial institution. It's not yours, Jen, I will not name it, but I had, I was a first time homeowner and I had, this was pre financial crisis. I had both a, a mortgage and a home equity loan. Um, and I remember that I would get my mortgage statements electronically and they were very slick, really beautifully designed. And then the HELOC statements looked like they came from a 1960s mimeograph machine. It was just, it was, I'm not throwing the home equity folks under the bus. It was just a different line of business. They had different systems set up. You could tell it was a silo. The connectivity wasn't there. And I think that we've come a tremendous way. So that training your brain of Google and, and Android and Apple and everybody makes us expect things differently. The only thing I would add is that, and I bet, Jen, you probably agree with this, Young people as a whole, I can say that now being Gen X, young people, um, they are not a digital monolith, right? Even within younger generations, when we speak to our colleagues and employees, you know, I have tons of younger people working at our firm who are amazing. They're pretty nuanced in terms of what they choose to use when. So even for them, there are some in-person touch points. And again, life stage, as I see some of them starting to think about a first home, like they want to talk to mortgage banker, they want to talk to a real estate agent, and they want a human being to help them. And it might even be sometimes in person. But with all the other stuff, as Jen said, they, they want to deal with it on their phone or their desktop, like be done with it. And they want it to be utterly seamless. So as long as we don't see them as a monolith, that they have no you know connection with um, within person activities. I remember going when I worked at Burson Marsteller years ago, 
seeing a generational expert come in and lecture to us about Gen X and how they did this and did that. I'm like, I don't necessarily see myself in everything you're saying. So as long as we see the nuance within them, and, and that's really my last point, which is I think what financial institutions are really working on now is that deeper level of personalization. That's the promise. How do we really personalize for what a real individual wants? It's hard to do it at scale. But I, I see institutions like yours, Jen, getting better and better at it all the time. I completely agree. And, you know, I, and I think you also have to evolve your product offerings. I mean, it's not just making them more accessible and digital, but really and truly thinking about what you're doing. You know, we recently um, launched a true name card so that people who are transgender can get a credit card with their chosen name on it as opposed to their what might still be their legal name uh and you know that's that's reflective of what how customers are living their lives today uh and the rights and that we should support um so it's it's thinking creatively that way as well and making sure that we're we're giving them products and services that meet the lives that they're living you know sometimes these conversations go so well that i really actually forget that i'm actually on camera could not have asked for a better discussion to kick this series off. Jen and Ann, thank you both so much for sharing your perspectives and taking the time from your very busy schedule to speak with me today and also to make me realize that I'm not as different in some things that I thought I was. So that was always a good lesson to, to, to get to take out of this. I'm very confident in saying that with leaders such as the two of you, the present and future of comms is in very good shape as well, in addition to the financial sector, of course. Thanks, of course, to JNS for making this event possible with its support. And thanks to all of you out there for tuning in. But be on the lookout in a few weeks' time for the second installment in the GNS PR Week Reshaping the Future series. The sector we focus on next time will be agribusiness. But until then, this is Gideon Fiddleside, Managing Editor of PR Week, wishing you all a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.